0: common ground for um, our women. So we'd love to have you join us either here in person or via Zoom. And then Saturday the 27th, we're going to host a kind of a skating party. We'll serve refreshments at Village Skate here in town uh, from 2 to 4 on Saturday the 27th. And so we would love to have you join us for that. Again, just we're glad to have you here with us, whether you're here in person or online. Um, yeah, let's Continue to worship together.
1: As we continue our service, let's responsively read from the book of Psalms, Psalm 145. In honor of the Lord's word and in preparation for the next song, let's stand together and read from God's word. The Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. All your works will thank you, Lord, and your faithful followers will praise you.
2: They will speak of the glory of your kingdom. They will give examples of your power.
1: They will tell about your mighty deeds and about the majesty and glory of your reign. For your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. You rule throughout all generations. The Lord always keeps his promises He is gracious in all he does.
2: Thank you.
0: be seated. And will you pray with me? Father God, we come to you this morning amazed by your goodness. We think about the frigid, cold outside. The fact that you provided us all that we need to live relatively comfortably, even in these temperatures. You've given us the ability to heat homes and to wear warm clothing and you've provided the means for those things. And you, in your goodness, have given your people the ability to Live in conditions even such as these. The sign of your goodness that I often take for granted. Yeah, but this morning, I want to thank you and praise you for your goodness to us, even in small things like that. God, you are good, you are working out your good plan in many ways throughout this world, even when things seem hard or bleak, we come before you trusting you have good purposes for your creation, that you are in the process of working all things for the good of those who trust in you, that one day you will set all things right, that there will be no more sickness, there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering. And we look forward to that day and we trust that you are in the process of bringing about that day. But as we wait for that day, God, we acknowledge that there is pain and suffering and hardship in this world. And so we pray for the people of this church, and people in our communities around us that are going through particularly hard times right now, God, that you would you would be at work in their lives to comfort those who need comfort, to heal those who are in need of healing. You would give the ability to be patient through suffering to those who need that patience. God, for the church around the world as well as they... Face persecution if they face trials of various kinds, God, that you would be at work to advance your kingdom both here and throughout the world in hard places where your name is actively opposed, God, that you would bring comfort and courage and boldness to Christians throughout the world if they seek to advance your kingdom. God, as we continue to worship you this morning, as we hear your word this morning, that you would give us heart tuned to hear what you have to say to us. That you would be at work to transform our lives, to form us more and more into the image of your Son through what we hear, through what we sing. God, would you be at work to transform us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.
1: So we're going to continue worship and song. As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning where we remember the tremendous love that God had for us, that He was willing to lay down His life and take our place in the punishment that our sin deserved. So, If you're able, uh, stand now and let's uh, worship a song. Uh, Let's sing a song in worship that helps us prepare to remember that great love and that great sacrifice.
0: pray. Father, we thank you, we praise you that we do we just saying, stand forgiven at the cross. You, through your Son, made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins. For our relationship with you to be made right, that we can be accepted, we can look forward to eternal life with you if we trust and believe in Jesus. We thank you for the cross. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing I forgot to mention a minute ago. um, So this is Communion Sunday, as Eric mentioned. And so if you didn't grab a Communion wafer and cup on your way in, you can sneak out during the service and grab one of those. Also, because it's Communion Sunday, we'll take our benevolence offering in addition to our regular offering and so on your way out on the right hand door someone will be holding a plate um, and so the, the plate being held is the benevolent plate, the regular plate on the table to your left is the regular giving plate and so Vanessa and I recently watched the first uh, the original Star Wars trilogy for the first time so episodes 4, 5 and 6 and so those the last one was released in 1983, which is before I was born. And so, like, just fair warning, I'm going to talk about how that movie ends. And so if you've been, like, holding off for 40 years watching these, like, I'm going to ruin the ending. So if you want to sneak out, feel free. All right, so, like, when that, the last of those movies ends, right, the Return of the Jedi, episode 6, when it wraps up, it brings a satisfying conclusion to that original trilogy. After this intense battle with the Empire, the Rebel Alliance destroys the new Death Star. Like Luke Skywalker, Father Anakin, a.k.a. Darth Vader, like, is redeemed when he gives his life to defeat the evil Emperor Palpatine and to save Luke's life. Han Solo and Leia are madly in love. Like, everything's resolved. It's a happy ending. Like, it's just a satisfying conclusion to that Three movie series. If they had just left Star Wars there, it would have been great. It would have been a wonderful story. But they couldn't leave it alone. If there's one thing that seems universally true about Hollywood, it's that if there's money to be wrung out of a franchise, they will keep wringing it until there's nothing left, even if it means ruining the franchise. And so, since that original trilogy ended, right, there's been no end to new Star Wars material. And little of this material has been good. Much of it has been downright bad. Right? So the three prequels, episodes 1, 2, and 3, right, they were pretty much universally denigrated as bad movies when they came out. Right? But, like, as bad as those movies were, like, at least they didn't like, ruin the ending of the original trilogy. Like by virtue of the fact that they were prequels, that they happened before the original trilogy, that they were somewhat immune from tarnishing the, how the original trilogy ended. Right? But the same cannot be said for episodes 7, 8, and 9, right? the sequel trilogy. Right? Those, those movies, the sequel trilogy, take place 30 years after the original trilogy ends. And so those 30 years have passed, then where do we find our beloved characters who have had that happy ending? Han and Leia are divorced. They have a grown son who hates them. Luke, the hero of the original trilogy, like he's off living in isolation because he had trained an apprentice who turned to the dark side. But the dark side that had, they had fought so valiantly to defeat has grown back and is stronger than ever. So, the happy ending of the original trilogy is totally undone, which makes watching that original trilogy somewhat unsatisfying because, as happy as it ends, you know it's not going to stay happy for very long. Like, it's incredibly unsatisfying. But it is kind of realistic. Right? Like, in this world, things can look really good, almost perfect for a moment. But because we live in a fallen and a broken world, like things don't stay perfect for very long. It's just a matter of time before something goes wrong. And we see an example of that in the book of Genesis this morning. We've been working our way through the book of Genesis through this Scarlet Thread series. We're going to wrap up the series this week, and then next week we'll head back into the book of Luke. And so this is the last... Sermon in the Genesis series. And so we left off two weeks ago, we weren't here last week, but two weeks ago we left off, Abraham had been called by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. And he had passed that test, and God had saved Isaac's life by providing a ram to sacrifice instead. And so Isaac, having been saved, grows up, and as you do when you grow up, like he desires to be married. But Abraham is adamant that Isaac must not marry a Canaanite woman. The Canaanites, they're the descendants of Noah's son, Ham, who Noah had cursed. Well, Abraham is a descendant of Shem, Noah's other son who he had blessed. So the families of Ham and Shem don't get along. So Abraham is adamant. Isaac cannot marry a Canaanite, which is a problem. Because Abraham and his family live in the land of Canaan. How is Isaac supposed to find a non-Canaanite wife while living in Canaan? The solution to that problem is that Abraham sends a servant back to his homeland. A 400-mile trip. That's how important this was to Abraham. 400-mile trip to find a wife for Isaac. And God leads this servant to this beautiful woman named Rebekah. And through God's kind of providential hand, Rebecca agrees to travel back to Canaan and marry Isaac, even though she's never met him. And then in Genesis 24, verse 67, we get this beautiful statement Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah, and he married Rebecca. So she became his wife, and he loved her. Everything seemed so happy. This is a movie, the credits would roll, everyone would be satisfied with the ending, it'd be great. This is, of course, no movie, and time marches on and things don't stay perfect forever. So Rebecca eventually becomes pregnant, and while she is pregnant, we see kind of the first signs of trouble. When God said to Rebecca, two nations are in your womb. And two people from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. The two kind of important things to see in this verse. First, there's two children in Rebekah's womb, and they're going to grow into two separate nations. The sons end up being Jacob and Esau. Esau being the older, Jacob being the younger. The second thing to see in this verse is that the older will serve the younger. And that's not how this is supposed to work, especially in those times. As the firstborn son was supposed to receive the inheritance and carry on the family name and lead the family. But here, before they're even born, God tells Rebecca that those roles are going to be flipped for these two twins. So if these twins, Jacob and Esau, are going to grow into separate nations And the older are going to serve the younger, and the kind of role reversal. You can kind of see the writing on the wall. Like, this is not a formula for a harmonious experience. But we see the real source of the problem a little bit later. In Genesis 25, 27 and 28, we read The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. Well, Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebecca loved Jacob. You want know to talk about a recipe for family conflict and family discord? Like one parent loving one child more than the other, while the other parent loves another child more than the other. Like that's a formula for disaster. And like, note the reason why Isaac loved Esau. Like. Because Esau could provide wild game that Isaac loved. Like, this should go without saying, but that's not a good reason to favor one child over another. So There's this tension brewing. It's the two parents love different children more. And that tension escalates in the very next verse when we read, Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country Famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So Esau swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. So now this, this birthright is the older son's share in the family estate. According to the customs during that time, the oldest son was entitled to a double portion of the estate. And so if you had eight sons in a family, you would divide the estate into the ninths, and the oldest son would get two ninths, which is a pretty good deal. But it's an especially good deal you only have two sons. With only two sons, so the estate gets divided into thirds. And the older son, Esau in this case, is entitled the two-thirds of the estate. Two-thirds to one-third. That's a big discrepancy. And Esau sells that advantage, that birthright, for nothing more than a bowl of stew because he is hungry. So this continues to breed family tension. Right? You going just see it, how it plays out. right? Esau, all his life, is going to resent Jacob for what he feels like Jacob did to take advantage of him in a moment of weakness. Well, Jacob's going to be like, I didn't do anything wrong. Like, I didn't force you to sell me the birth. Right? Like, you got what you deserved. And then, just to add to the tension, a verse, in chapter 26 of Genesis, we read this. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Biri the Hittite, and also Basneth, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. And so Esau marries two Hittite women. The Hittites are a clan of the Canaanites. So Esau is marrying Canaanites, even though Abraham had made it so clear to Isaac. That his family should not marry Canaanite women. And these Hittite women, are, we are told, that they're a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. So you can kind of see the picture. This is a house divided. It's Rebekah and Jacob versus Isaac and Esau. we have gone from this happy love story of Isaac and Rebekah being deeply in love We've gone to a house full of deep animosities and tension. That's where we kind of, that's where things stand as we pick up the story this morning in Genesis 27. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Genesis 27. We're going to spend most of our time there this morning. That's our human nature, right? Anytime there's conflict, we want to pick sides. To see one side as the good side the good guys and one side as the bad guys, right? So you're going to be, in this case, you're going to be, are you Team Jacob or are you Team Esau? What we're going to see in this story is that there are no good guys. All the main characters in this story act unrighteously. Like no one deserves to win. And yet, God is going to work through this messed up, broken family to bring about his purposes. It's so like, when we read this story, our reaction should not be, let me pick a side. Our reaction should be, should be to be amazed by the sovereignty and the power of God that he can bring about his good purposes even in the midst of a mess like this. What we see in this passage that God uses human sin to achieve his purposes. Those purposes, those sins, still have consequences. God is going to work out his purposes in this story, despite the sins and unrighteous behavior of everyone involved in the story. But just because God uses their unrighteousness, that doesn't mean there won't be consequences for their sin. So as we... We focus in on Genesis 27. All that family tension that had been building over the year is going to finally come to a head. Like, Europe before World War One is often described as a powder keg, right, just waiting to explode. And the assassination of Franz Ferdinand was the spark that ignited the powder and caused the explosion that was World War I. And that, on a smaller scale, is where we find Isaac's family in this passage. There are these deep underlying tensions just waiting to explode. And all it's going to take is one spark, one incident, to cause an explosion that makes the family disintegrate and fall apart. And then in Genesis 27, we see that spark. And the spark is a battle over the question who gets the blessing? So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at how God called and blessed Abraham. And God told Abraham that he would make Abraham into a great nation. He would bless Abraham. And that through Abraham, all the earth would be blessed. And that blessing was passed on to Isaac. And now Isaac is about to pass it on to one of his sons. And the tension in this passage revolves around the question... Which son is he going to pass it on to? And not surprisingly, because Isaac loves Esau, Isaac desires to pass it on to Esau. In verses 1 through 4 of Genesis 27, we read, When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered, Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat that I may give you my blessing before I die. A couple things to notice here. First, just notice the greed and gluttony of Isaac. There's no reason for him to make Esau go get game for him before he passes on this blessing. But Isaac loves that food that Esau makes so much that he figures, meh, I might as well get something for myself out of this deal. Right, so I'm going to send him out to get food for me first, then I'll bless him. And then second, blessings like this are meant to be very public affair, like a public transferring of the blessing to the next son. And yet Isaac is going to try to carry this blessing out in private, in secret. That's a pretty clear indication that he understands that he should not be giving the blessing to Esau. There's at least three reasons why he should not be giving the blessing to Esau. One, one, most importantly, there was God's declaration when Rebekah was pregnant, pregnant that the older would serve the younger. God had stated way back then that the blessing would go to the younger son. And because of that conflict in the family, you can be sure right, Rebekah did not let Isaac forget about that promise. And second, Esau had already sold his birthright to Isaac. And the author of Hebrews says, and don't be like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as to the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. And so the author of Hebrews, who's inspired by God, as so we assume God as well, right, sees the birthright and the blessing is linked together. And so by selling the birthright, Esau had also sold his right to receive the blessing. And then third, the third reason Esau wasn't, didn't deserve the blessing was that he had married these Canaanite women in violation of Abraham's command. So Esau is not worthy to receive the blessing. And Isaac knows it. But that's not going to stop Isaac from trying to give the blessing to Esau. So he has this plan to send Esau out and get some meat and they're going to bless him. they're a hitch in his plan. Because it turns out that Rebekah had overheard Isaac, and she has a plan of her own. A plan to get Jacob the blessing instead of Esau. So in verses 5 through 10 of Genesis 27, we read, Now Rebekah was listening as Esau spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother, Esau, bring me some game and prepare some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. So there's the plan Rebecca hatches to deceive Isaac and get the blessing for Jacob instead of Esau. But Jacob sees the problem with this plan. In verse 11 we read, Jacob said to Rebecca his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man, while I have smooth skin." And so Jacob sees a problem. And the problem he should have seen was how immoral this whole plan was. Right? To lie, to deceive, but that's not the problem he sees. The problem he sees is a far more practical problem. That is that, like, sure, Isaac's blind, right? but his other senses still work. And Jacob doesn't feel like Esau. But Rebecca has a plan for that. As well. In verse 15, we read. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goatskins. She covered Jacob's hands and neck and goat skin so he feels hairy like Esau. And then she sends Jacob into Isaac, pretending to be Esau, hoping to trick Isaac into blessing Jacob instead of Esau. This is pure deception. Instead of trusting God to keep his promises through his own means, Rebekah is taking matters into her own hands in a totally unrighteous way. But as the story continues. We read, starting in verse 18, Jacob went to his father and said, My father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. The Lord your God gave me success. Jacob invokes the Lord's name in telling a lie. That's pure blasphemy. If you're inclined to think that Jacob's the good guy in this story, it falls apart right there. All four members of the family are sinning in significant ways. Isaac, he's trying to undermine God's plan and give his favored son the blessing. Esau, despite having sold his birthright, goes along with Isaac's plan to take the blessing. Rebecca is plotting to lie and deceive to make sure her favorite son gets the blessing instead of trusting God to work out his purposes. And Jacob goes along with Rebekah's deceptive plan and is lying about his identity and invoking God's name to give validity to his lies. So if you're inclined to read the Bible, at a book of heroes who do great things for God. Like this should blow that up. Like This is a messed up family full of sinners. What should us about this story is that God doesn't write them off. God doesn't bail on his plan to use Abraham and Isaac's family for his purposes. God had made his promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation. He had passed that promise on to Isaac. And God is going to keep that promise despite the sin of this family. Instead of abandoning them for their sin, God uses their sin to achieve his purposes. God's purpose in this situation that he revealed way back when Rebecca was pregnant but for the older to serve the younger. God's plan since before Jacob and Esau were born was to continue the promise he had made to Abraham through Jacob and not through Esau. And we see that that plan comes or that promise comes to fruition in this passage. Picking up the story in verse 21, we read. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son. To know whether you are really my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau? he asked. I am, he replied. Which I you find that verse funny? like He makes a comment about the voice sounding like Jacob. So all of a sudden Jacob is like, how short can I answer? Like, I am. That's it. And then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat, that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him, and he ate. And he brought some wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and people bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. So God's purpose of seeing the blessing be passed on to Jacob rather than Esau is achieved here. But that doesn't mean Jacob's trickery was right. There won't be consequences for Jacob's trickery. This is the theme we see over and over again in the Bible. A few months ago, we went through the book of Habakkuk. God, in that book, uses the Babylonians to judge the people of Judah. But just because God used the Babylonians to judge Judah, it doesn't mean the Babylonians were right, that they wouldn't be punished for their sin. God used the sins of the Babylonians to achieve his purposes. It was all part of God's plan. But God also promised Habakkuk, the Babylonians would be judged for their sins against Judah. What we learn from the Babylonians and what we also see in the lives of Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau is that sin has consequences. Even when God uses our sin for His purposes. We don't have time to read the rest of this story in its entirety. But in the rest of the passage, like, the family proceeds to just fall apart. Esau, after having been sent out by Isaac to go find game, comes in from hunting and brings his meal to his father only to find that the blessing's already been given. And after a little confusion, like Isaac and Esau realize they've been tricked. Esau pleads with his father to bless him too. But Isaac has nothing more to bless Esau with. He's already given everything to Jacob and it cannot be rescinded. And so Esau is understandably furious. And in verse 41 we read, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So the family falls apart as a result of this event. One brother wants to kill the other. Everything is falling apart. So Rebecca hears that Esau is planning to kill Jacob. So she pleads with Isaac to send Jacob away to live with her brother Laban. And that's kind of how this portion of the story wraps up. Jacob is being sent out to live with Laban. Esau is left to be angry. But if we stop there, it kind of seems like Jacob and Rebekah got away with their sin. God had used their deception to bring about his purpose of blessing Jacob, and now they got away with it and everything is fine. But if we read on in Genesis, it becomes clear right, that there's consequences for their sins. For one, like Rebekah more or less like drops out of the story altogether. Like She gets... Hardly mentioned the rest of the book of Genesis. We're not even told when she dies. Like we're told when everyone dies in Genesis, except for Rebecca. In fact, like in 35:8, we read, "Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and was buried under the oak outside Bethel. So it was named Alanbachuth." Like Rebecca's nurse dies, and we get told that, but we're never told when Rebecca dies her deception has consigned her to be more or less forgotten. And additionally, because she has to send Jacob away, she's never going to see her beloved son again. And so there are consequences for Rebecca's sin. And for Jacob, like, we see consequences for his sin too. Right? When he gets to Laban's house, he falls in love with Laban's daughter Rachel and agrees to work seven years in order to marry her. But when the time to marry her comes, Laban deceives Jacob and gives Jacob his other daughter, Leah, as a wife instead. Years later, Jacob's older sons will convince him that his favorite son, Joseph, has been killed when actually they've just sold him into slavery. So in the life of Jacob, we see like the deceiver has become the deceived. Twice he is deceived in significant ways. Additionally, Jacob will spend years fearing the consequences of what would happen if he ever encounters Esau again. Like, sin blew Isaac's family apart, and everyone involved suffers the consequences. But through it all, God brings about His Purposes, And, of course, like the clearest example of this in all the Bible right, of God bringing about his purposes through sin is seen in the life of Jesus. In Acts 2, Peter says that Jesus' death was by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. God was not caught off guard when his beloved Son, that the sinless life was betrayed by Judas and falsely accused by Jewish leaders and given a sham trial by Pilate and crucified by the Romans. Like, it didn't catch God off guard. It was part of his deliberate plan. Like, it was the only way that God could save a people for himself. Like, Jesus had to be crucified, buried, and raised from the dead so that anyone who believes in him can have eternal life. And ultimately, that death and burial and resurrection of Jesus is how God keeps his promise to Abraham. It's how that promise would be fulfilled. As people from every nation and tribe and tongue place their faith in Jesus and are blessed with eternal life, like it's God's means of keeping his promise. But there were still consequences for the people who sinned against Jesus and crucifying him. And then taking communion, which we're about to do this morning, we have this opportunity to remind ourselves of how God can use even sin to bring about his purposes. How, like, even though there's consequences for our sins here on earth, the eternal consequence of sins have been taken care of by Jesus that in the breaking of his body, which we remember by eating the bread, and by the pouring out of his blood, which we remember by drinking the juice, we have a chance to remember that Jesus' death showed that God will bring about his good purposes through human sin, and that the eternal consequences of our sin are already paid for. So in a moment, we're going to sing the old rugged cross, which highlights the power of the cross to deal with our sins. And as that song ends, I want to give us a few moments of quiet reflection time. And I'd encourage you during that time to think about a couple of questions. And these will be on the screen after the song. But the questions are this. One, like, are you trusting God to bring about his good purposes even through the sins of others? Do you trust that God is big enough to work even when others are sinning to bring about His good purposes? And then second, second question to ponder. Is there sin in your life which maybe you're feeling the consequences of now that you need to repent of, to stop doing and to ask God to forgive you for before the consequences become even more severe? So, We'll sing over on good cross, give you some time for reflection on those two questions, and then I'll come back up, and we'll partake in communion together. Let's pray. Father, we we confess that we are sinful, that we violate your commands, that we try to take matter into our own hands and to live life the way we want to live it instead of trusting you and the way you have called us to live it. We, we confess our sin. We know that there are consequences for that sin here on earth that because of the harm we do to ourselves and to others by our sin, there are consequences. We praise you, God, that you sent Jesus to live a sinless life, yet be crucified on a cross on our behalf, to die, ultimately to be raised from the dead, but by believing in him, we can have eternal life, that the ultimate consequence for our sin is paid for, is dealt with in Jesus. We can look forward to eternity with you because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. God, help us to never take the cross for granted. Help us to never take what Jesus accomplished lightly. Help us to be amazed your goodness, your love for us. Each and every day, help us to never lose sight of all you've done for us. Help us to live our lives desiring to honor you in light of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we
2: praise you that the worst
0: offense ever committed, the killing of your son, your sinless, perfect son, ultimately was part of your plan that you used it for your good purposes as we partake of this bread and this juice together. You remind us just of your your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to open up your bread and your juice, your bread first. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Partake. The same way. Remembrances, reminders of the price your son has to pay for our sins. Will they show us, will they remind us of the severe consequences for sin. Your sinless son had to die in order for our sins to be atoned for. God, as we feel the weight, the severity, of our sin, and we see the severe consequences, would it compel us to live holy lives that honor You, that trust You, that reflect the way You have called us to live, trusting that You know what is best for us. As our Creator, You know the good life You have for us if we are obedient to You. Help us to obey, help us to live holy lives that seek to honor you. In in Jesus' name, amen. As we go from here, would you go trusting that God is at work to bring about his good purposes? You are dismissed.